It's good to be with you this morning and sharing with you from uh, God's Word. As Stuart says, we are hoping to look at the life of Samson this morning. And I would like, uh, for the sake of continuity, we're going to be looking at chapters 13 through 15 uh, to read uh, some of chapter 15 before we begin. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes, tied them tail to tail in pairs. He fastened a torch to each pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Then moving on to verse uh, 11, uh, Samson has exacted his vengeance. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us what have you done to us he answered i merely did to them what they did to me they said to him we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the philistines samson said swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves agreed they answered so will uh, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them we will not kill you so they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. And finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then moving on to verse 18. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor and is there uh, still. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now then, the story of Samson has excited many from Sunday school days, a hero figure of unimaginable strength. Uh, but I imagine as we reach adulthood, he's increasingly viewed as an enigma. Uh, 
and we wonder, is he a goodie or a baddie, this Samson? I wonder if you knew that the Samson narrative isn't read in Jewish synagogues because he's not considered to be a righteous man, worthy of study. And yet, the book of Hebrews lists him as a hero who, through faith, administered justice. Well, I wonder, can we crack the Enigma code that is Samson and uh, benefit ourselves in the process? Uh, The roadmap I propose to follow this morning uh, looks, first of all, at a potential promised, and then a potential indulged, and thirdly, a potential harnessed. Well, a potential promised. We really can't understand the story of Samson apart from its historical setting. And it develops during uh, a fragile time, perhaps the most fragile time in Israel's history. Uh, The period between their entering into the land of promise and the establishment of the monarchy. A time of profound political upheaval, spiritual darkness, and moral anarchy. The, the graph of Israel's spiritual life at this time is one of peaks and troughs. A repetitious pattern of disobedience, chastening, repentance, and uh, restoration, deliverance. Uh, the latter coming through the hands of a judge. And in chapter 13, verse 1, we learn that the the Philistines had wrecked havoc in Israel for 40 years. But, unlike the other judges, and this is significant, unlike the other judges, Samson does not appear on the scene in response to the cries of a repentant people. They had passively accepted their subjugation to the Philistines. Nevertheless, though uninvited, God intervened with the promise of a child who would fulfill his saving purpose. First, note if you will, this promised child is placed in a tailor-made environment. Now today, it's very fashionable for children to blame all of their difficulties on their parents. I was unloved as a child. I was ignored as a wee boy, and so on. But Samson couldn't have been born into a better home or given a better start. He couldn't have had grace, duty, and obedience modeled to him more clearly His mum obeyed all the prenatal instruction that's given to her in chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. And his dad even signed up for a parenting course. Look at verse 8 of chapter 13. Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to come to us again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Aspiring fathers, uh, take note Child rearing is neither easy nor instinctive. 
but is enabled as we exercise that kind of dependence upon the grace of God. These parents also display the the complementarity that is found in God's blueprint for marriage. In verse 22, uh, Manoah realizes he's met the angel of the Lord and says, we're doomed to die. We've seen God. Uh, I can't read those verses without thinking of Corporal Fraser. Uh, You may remember, we're doomed, we're doomed. Uh, To which his level-headed wife, not Corporal Fraser's, but Manoah's, his level-headed and balanced wife counters, don't be daft. Or the text actually says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands or shown us all these things or now told us this. You see, Samson was placed in a stable, godly environment. Now, if that's been your experience, then thank God for that. Some may say, but wait a minute, I'm from a disadvantaged background Will that rob me of my potential for fruitful service? Not at all. God is not only bigger than your environment, but he can use it no matter how, how horrendous it has been to prepare you for his service. Remember Joseph? He came from a dysfunctional home, one marked by tension and jealousy and abuse. That in addition to enslavement and imprisonment, was the the bespoke environment in which God created a man for fruitful service. Secondly, notice the promise of potential that's seen in Samson's calling. Samson had no need of career's advice. He could answer that predictable adult question Now, what are you going to do when you grow up, Sonny? His role was set out in chapter 13, verse 5. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. No jobs fair necessary for him. He is set apart by God for distinctive service. Hence the term Nazarite used in Uh, Verse 5 and 7 of chapter 13. It relates to to booze and diet and haircuts. He was to abstain from fermented drink, unclean food and razors. He'd have been the envy of my generation. We were constantly being told, get a haircut. Not Samson. This Nazarene code symbolized something vital. A life that was consecrated to God and to his rule. Now, is that so far removed from what is expected of the Christian? Ephesians 2 and 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the, that's the great potential of the Christian calling. Thirdly, notice the promise and potential of Samson's gifting. Not just in terms of his Iron Man muscle power, 
For in chapter 13 and verse 25 and 14, verses 16 and 19 and 15, verses 14 and 19, we read of the, the Spirit of the Lord falling upon him, empowering him to perform superhuman tasks. What tremendous potential lay in his gifting. Think for a moment this morning of your own gifting. Some are naturally gifted in the field of music, the arts, sports, academia. To say nothing of the super-added gifts of communication or discernment, hospitality, guidance, helps, and so on. And if we find ourselves thinking this morning, my gifts are sparse in comparison with others, then grasp what Samson clearly failed to grasp. The key to God's gifting is not our possession of it, but in what we do with it. The key to God's gifting is not our possession of it, but what we do with it. Think of Jesus' parable of the talents. It was not what each man was given, but how he employed his gift that truly mattered. That's the point. We can stifle it. We can bury it. It was surely our capacity to to quench, to, to suppress our giftedness that caused Paul to exhort Timothy to stir up the gift that was given you. Don't suppress it, stir it up. Perhaps we can ask this morning, what use do I make of my gift? Am I, with with God's help, fulfilling my potential? Or like Samson, living in the shadow of what might have been. Now in chapter 13 and verse 24, we read uh, that as Samson grew, the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him to recognize his God-given role as the, as the judge of his people. Did standing on the threshold of new and demanding spiritual service precipitate an enemy attack? I believe it did. This pattern is, is unpacked in the life of our Lord Jesus. Remember at his baptism, he was endued with the, the power of the Spirit, his identity, And his mission was underlined. But what happened next? He was bombarded by Satan's temptation in the wilderness. Designed to derail his public ministry. Even before it began. Jesus triumphed over that temptation. Samson capitulated right away. If when at school, Samson was voted the student most likely to succeed, we are in these next chapters disabused of that notion. The 
second stop on our roadmap is one of potential indulged. His life is marked by impulsiveness, indiscipline, disobedience, recklessness, deception, larceny, violent self-indulgence. Dr. Alt uh, Schuller of the University of California calls Samson a classic example of someone suffering from antisocial personality disorder. Now, whether whether or not that's true, notice some of the ways in which his potential is indulged. First, in his determination to take a Philistine wife, 14 verse 1, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. No discussion. Get her for me. No deferring to parental advice. Just get her for me. No submission to the law of God, which forbade mixed marriages. Just get her for me. Uppermost in his mind was what he wanted and not what was right or what was good for him. What an example for an emerging leader to set. Many Christians have excused their sin by by pointing to their pastor and saying, he did it, why shouldn't I? Self-indulgence blinds us to how our behavior affects others. Gratification of its own lust is all that counts. John Milton's poem, Samson Agonistes, has Samson's father say this, who would now a father be in my stead? Uh, The words of of a broken hearted father come tumbling out. Well, what of God's heart? What did God say of Israel? What more could I have done for you than I have done? Look at, look at the start you had. Look at the gift you were given. What more could I have done for you? Christian young people who are listening this morning, the most important life choice that you can make is who you will marry. That decision, now bear this in mind, that decision more than any other will impact decisively on the fruitfulness of your Christian service. A wrong choice here can drain away your potential. Secondly, there is an identifiable momentum in Samson's indulgence. We read three times in verses 1, 5, and 7 that Samson went down. Is this not more than a a geographical descriptor? Samson went down, yes, he went downhill spiritually. A line, a well-known hymn says, each victory will help you some other to win. But it's equally true to say, that successive uncontested defeats ensure future downfalls. 
traveling down to Timnah with his parents, Samson lingers. Why? Is he fed up with their spiritual advice? You see, temperamentally, Samson was a loner. And that can be very dangerous in the work of God. I wonder if we've surrounded ourselves with wise counsels, spiritual sounding boards, who will help arrest any momentum of spiritual indulgence. After Samson killed the lion and later liberated honey from its carcass, note that he withheld its source when he offered some of that honey to his parents. Why? Was he disguising the fact that he had broken his Nazarite vow? Having come into contact with a dead carcass, offering his parents something that was unclean? Oh, Samson, how could you? What would mum and dad think? Well, they weren't told. That was kept from them. The whole story in these chapters uh, continues this pattern of a, a downhill momentum. Uh, Thirdly, consider, if you will, the needless provocation of his groomsmen in chapter 14, verse 14. Samson, remember, set them this impossible riddle out of the eater, something to eat out of the strong, something sweet. Impossible, unless you were there and saw what happened to answer the riddle. Was the wager challenge designed to pay off the, the cost of the wedding? Here's an easy out. No wonder his groomsmen press his bride in verse 15. Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? They're mad. They've been hustled. This is a hustle. Samson hasn't played fair. And so a costly tit-for-tat pattern of violence unfolds, all beginning with Samson's indulgent provocation. Three revenge stories are found in chapter 15. The first incident is sparked off by the discovery that Samson's bride had been married off to one of his best men. Her father, not unreasonably, thought Samson would have no further interest in the woman who had betrayed him, given away the source of the riddle. Samson's OTT response in 15 verse 5 was to capture 300 foxes, pair them up, tie an incendiary device to their tails, set them loose in the Philistine grain fields, and not an animal rights activist in sight. The Philistine's revenge was to burn Samson's wife along with her father. And then Samson ups the ante, verses 7 and 8. I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. And he attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. And so the Philistines pressed the men of Judah to capture Samson and deliver him into their hands. And so a force of 3,000 Israelites... 3,000, persuade Samson to become their prisoner. But upon delivery, he bursts his bonds and kills a 1,000 Philistines. What led to such abuse and indulgence of Samson's potential? 
Was it a distorted sense of perspective? For what truly gave his potential such promise was that God had gifted it. But Samson saw its value as resting in who he was and what he could do. Here is a man who is far too big for his boots. He thought too much of himself and too little of God. And his behavior is characterized by what I want. And not by what does God want in this situation. There is a Tamil proverb that says a blade of grass is a mighty weapon in the hands of God. Well, there was no way in which Samson was going to acknowledge that he was a mere blade of grass. Third point, a potential harnessed. And we ask, are there only negatives to be taken from the story of Samson? No, we find this picture of harness potential in these verses in chapter 15. Uh, first, by recognizing that ultimately, this is not the story of Samson. Let me repeat that. Ultimately, This is not the story of Samson, but of God at work as the deliverer of his people. Remember, God's purpose was for Samson to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines, 13 verse 5. God's people were poised to lose their distinctiveness and sink in a sea of nauseating syncretism. They'd become accustomed to accepting Philistine rule and values. When 3,000 Israelites approached Samson in 15 verse 11, they might as well have carried banners reading, Enemy in control, do not disturb. The text reads, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? We are realists, Samson. These Philistines are in charge. Well, God intended to take issue with the Philistines, whether the people of Judah liked it or not. And God's salvation can sometimes be very messy. God will go to any lengths and use any means to make sure that his people disengage from friendship with the world. Yes, even if it meant using a badly flawed Samson. But secondly, we do need to comment on Samson's lawlessness in the light of chapter 14 and verse 4, where concerning the bad marriage we read, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord. A prominent evangelical writes, there you are, Samson is absolved of all wrongdoing. It was from the Lord. We need to exercise great caution here. A God of infinite holiness can never approve of sin or absolve its practitioners. But he can use it without being its author. 
in ways many people find difficult to understand, Samson's sinful failure is harnessed by God to accomplish his purpose. I wonder if you find that idea disturbing. God's use of evil without approval of its perpetrators is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon, and he says, this man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. No, he doesn't say... You're absolved of your sin because the crucifixion of Jesus was central to God's plan. Instead of being given a medal for their part in salvation history, they're treated as culpable and commanded to repent of their sin. Now, in exactly the same way, God has harnessed Samson's lawlessness to advance his purpose. He did not absolve Samson of his sin. Thirdly, there is a glimmer of spiritual light in chapter 15, verse 18. Samson has just killed a thousand Philistines using a piece of low-tech weaponry, the jawbone of an ass. He doesn't want his feet recorded in the Guinness Book of Records. Instead, it is said in his first recorded prayer two things of great note. First, an admission of his dependence upon the grace of God to meet his needs. Lord, I'm thirsty. Help me. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then secondly, notice the man who'd hitherto enjoyed being in the spotlight look at me he says it's not my victory it's yours lord it's not my doing it's yours isn't that amazing he's prepared now to acknowledge he's a blade of grass if you like in the hands of god And that twofold recognition is, I believe, a step towards more fruitful service. I wonder if you've heard of Samuel Brengel. He was the first American-born officer to become a commissioner in the Salvation Army. And one evening, after being introduced on a public platform as the great Samuel Brengel, uh, he went home and he wrote this in his diary. I'm so concerned that God uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. I could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I might never lose sight of this. And one wonders if something of that sentiment began to harness Samson at this point. My reason for asking that is found in the words of verse 20 of chapter 15. Samson led Israel for 20 years. 
Now, the writer provides exactly the same information at the end of chapter 16 and verse 31. Why mention it in two different places? Think for a moment of Samson's timeline. 1325, the spirit stirs him as a young man to enter the role of judge. And that's followed by Samson's marriage venture and this tit-for-tat situation that goes on with the Philistines, unlikely to have lasted more than a few years at most. And then when we enter chapter 16, which records Samson's downfall and imprisonment, again, unlikely to have lasted more than a few years. And that leaves 15 plus years unaccounted for. Can I suggest that during these in-between years, Samson's potential is harnessed so that normal service is resumed, years of fruitful service, years when, as the writer to the Hebrews says, Samson, by faith, administered justice. The text allows that interpretation. Now, if that's the case, Can we be encouraged to believe that our early failures in the work of God do not need to shape our service in the years that follow? Failures can be reinstated. God can harness the potential of our lives both negatively by using our sinful behavior in the past, even despite us, And positively by restoring to us a more fruitful sphere of service. Of course, the fact that God can use our sinful past should never be seized upon as a license for careless, sinful living. But it can encourage those who are distracted and paralyzed by past failure to believe that God has a boundless capacity to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I wonder as we close this morning, have you allowed God to harness your potential, to to reorientate your spiritual perspective? Martin Luther famously wrote, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. May God seal his word to our minds and hearts. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you this morning. For the tremendous potential of each one of our lives. We thank you for our background, our gifting. The enabling of your spirit. Forgive us, Father, for those occasions when we have indulged that potential. When we have failed to be the people that we ought to have been. Be pleased, Lord God, to create a right spirit within us, penitent hearts, ready to be 
those blades of grass in the hands of God. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.